Compete on technical quality and stop rebuilding things with John Alderson from Yoast. Brought to you by Majestic, I'm David Bain and this is SEO in 2022. Jono, what is your number one SEO tip for 2022? It's to stop looking at technical debt as something that we have to fix and to stop looking at technical SEO as something that we have to prevent errors with and um, prevent from degrading and start looking at it as something we can compete on. Start thinking that if we make our technical infrastructure and our platform twice as good as our competitors, we pay, get paid dividends in rankings and performance and conversions and a hundred other tangential things. We need to completely reframe how we look at technical SEO from a negative thing into a positive thing. Okay, so what does competing on technical quality mean in practice? What are the, the key elements that SEOs will tend to have to focus in on here? So instead of saying, how do we take our broken, slow, inaccessible website from a four out of 10 to a six out of 10, because that's enough to tick some boxes and get by and not be quite as bad as the competition. What if instead we say, how do we quantify what perfect would look like? How do we say, how much money might we make if we were twice as fast as the next fastest player in the market? If we had no 404 errors ever, how much do we stand to gain if we not just if we didn't just fix the basics, but actually went beyond that to say, how do we make everything excellent? How do we embrace all of the new standards? How do we prevent spending, prevent us from spending any time fixing things that break all the time? How do we get to a position where we never have to worry about 404s and 301s? When you get to that kind of place, then suddenly you've got orders of magnitude, more budget and time and resource to be doing the things that matter, like brand building and content strategy, rather than fixing things that are constantly on fire and breaking. So I can certainly see the value of doing that, but sometimes it's hard to convince or have a business case of doing things to business leaders. Um, why would you want to necessarily get twice as good as your competitors if just being a little bit better actually gets you number one in the search results and gets you to be generally the number one perceived brand in your arena? So we know that with things like speed and quality in general, there are so many benefits other than just the explicit SEO ranking boosts. We know that a few milliseconds can be the difference between somebody spending or looking out the window and getting distracted. We know that the perception that users have of brands as they browse and as they surf and interact with websites flavors how likely they might be to buy again in the future. It flavors how likely they might be to recommend. As long as whilst we keep looking at it as how little can I get away with doing, we never get to a position where you start surprising and delighting customers, which, yes, if all you want to do is rank first is fine, but then you're in a really risky position where if one of your competitors goes above and beyond, you're, you lose customers, you lose hearts and minds, your addressable market size diminishes, there are fewer customers you can chase in the market, your cost per click on your page channels gets more expensive. All of this gets harder because you were never trying to own and win the consumer, you were just trying to do as little as you could get away with to tick some boxes. And really that's not the game. The, so much of SEO, especially into next year and beyond, is becoming, always has been winner take all, but it's becoming even more winner takes all. As I, um, there's a joke that the best place to hide a body is on page two of Google, but the world has changed, that's old school. The best place to hide a body is on the second result in Google, on anything except 
the best result for this query for this user right here, right now. So really, we all need to be aiming to be in that position because even if you're getting away with being okay at the moment, it only takes a tiny shift in the marketplace for you to be winning to be gone. And that's like, you don't want to be building your business strategy on that. So Core Web Vitals has put things like CSS and JavaScript front and center for SEOs, and they're changing all the time. So is it really an SEO's job to stay on top of that? I think yes and no, and this is, this is really difficult. So I, I love what Core Web Vitals has done. We've had a watershed moment where, as you say, suddenly the entire technology stack has become, if not the purview of SEO, at least something we need to have an opinion on. But even as a technical SEO nerd and somebody who lives and breathes and quite often dreams CSS, which is disturbing, <laughs> I find myself struggling to keep up on some of it. And it re it's cliche to say, but it moves so fast. I've, I'm in groups of things like some of the Chrome experimental features, and I get lost in the level of technical jargon and terminology around things they're doing with automatic performance profiling and other stuff. There is no way that as an industry... SEO can be expected to do or effectively keep up with and manage and maximize this. If Jono gets lost, <laughs> what hope do the rest of us have? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, funny you should say, so I I started um, I started working on a conference presentation recently where I thought, you know what, I'm gonna actually I'm gonna tell this story and I'm gonna describe all of the moving parts of how you build a perfect website because I, I I've looked through all of this, I've seen the moving parts, I've learned it. There are only so many ingredients, there's only so many standards, and it's just a case of knowing about them and finding them. And I started building this slideshow, and I got to about 20 slides in on how to build an image tag, like IMG, SRC equals cat.jpg. Okay, it needs an alt attribute. And this started getting more and more complex, and it got to, okay, and we also need a saucer attribute for different screen sizes, and what happens if it's landscape? What happens if it's dark mode? I got to 70 slides on how to put an image on a web page. And I was still learning things as I was putting these slides together. So if we can't, if, if something as simple as putting a cat on an HTML web page <laughs> takes an hour to educate, even to a, the basic level, so that it's fast and performant and secure and accessible and SEO friendly, and you're meeting all the modern standards and it's loading in the right way, mm. there's no way we can do all of this. Not at all. So yeah, we, we definitely need to be involved, but this is not a thing that SEO can own for sure. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we've got a CMS that does most of the heavy lifting, lifting <laughs> for us when we're doing things like that. But um, in terms of education, uh, obviously an SEO can't know absolutely everything about things like CSS and JavaScript, but um, where's some resources online that you would recommend for them to actually get a decent um, modern view on what is essential to know at the moment? Sure. So there are there are two places, and they're both from Google, which is not a coincidence. Um, one is web.dev, which is their general web dev portal. And it, it's a little bit sprawling and busy, but it's worth digging through because there's some there's a whole bunch of blog posts and articles, some of which are truly phenomenal, some of which are incomprehensibly technical. Like there's one I was reading the other day about signed exchanges, which is a whole new trans I won't even go into it. It's like that. But some of it is great. Some of it is um, how to put a responsive image on a page. So that's really good for kind of ad hoc learning. For something more structured, um, Google's PageSpeed Insights documentation, not the PageSpeed Insights tool, but all of their web fundamentals documentation that sits around it. It goes right from 
here is what a server is and how it works, through to here's why you should load your JavaScript in this particular order, right through to here's how you minify your CSS, here's how you do responsive stuff, everything you need in that. But the problem is still, it's far too much to consume, it's far too much to know. And I think the same challenge occurs is that you, at some point, have to rely on frameworks and platforms and CMSs and other people getting stuff right. Um, we can't do this manually. There's, there's too much of it. We can't audit it. We can't learn it. We can't manage it. Can't keep on top of it. I keep my 70 sides of images. There are 75 now because there are five new things have happened since last month when I wrote it and they change out like it's impossible. There's too much. This is really a presentation for yourself, isn't it? It's not actually for anyone else. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. It's been really fun. <laughs> so uh, if an SEO is tr striving towards perfection and wanting to achieve that as, as, as per, um, that's what you advocate. Uh, obviously, you, they have to look at every single element that can make a site fast and AMP could, could be one of them. Um, is, should, should every site be using AMP at the moment? So I'm, I'm hugely biased towards I'm a huge proponent of AMP and I should disclose that I'm on the AMP advisory committee, which means I have opinions on what AMP is and where it goes. But I'm on that committee and I'm involved because I think that it is a good solution to this kind of challenge. Um, because the other thing that we've not touched on is it's not enough to chase and get near perfection and to build a perfect site. You also then need to maintain it as standards change, as personnel come and go, as your IT director quits and somebody else takes their place and changes everything, as policy changes, consumer expectations change. You have to build it and then you have to maintain it. And AMP is a, a not the, certainly not the universal, but a very good framework for solving that kind of thing. And the really nice thing about it, one of many, is you essentially offload all of the requirements to have that knowledge and that maintenance to all the developers who work on it, who coincidentally tend to involve a large amount of Google developers. And what's really nice is you start to see, so I, I run my website on WordPress on the AMP for WordPress plugin, mm -hmm. the, main, um, the main developers of which work for Google. So I wake up in the morning, I go, hmm, how's my site doing? Oh, great, it scores 98 on Core Web Vitals, and that gets faster over time. And I look at the source code, and there's a bit there I don't recognize. And it turns out that some Google employee who works in close proximity to the search team has spent the evening working on my website. Not mine personally, but all the, all the websites running this mm -hmm. software. So there were Google employees working on my website so that I score better on Google Scores so that I rank better in Google. And this is a, a profound light bulb moment. It's like, can you imagine? So they're operating at a technical level which far exceeds my ability as a developer. They are right on the cutting edge of what's possible and what's best practice. And every day that goes by, my site gets better, not worse. It's not filling up with 404s. It's not slowing down because I'm not keeping it with technical debt. It's ahead of the curve and the gap gets further ahead. And if you imagine brands doing that same thing, you think the impact of the resource they're not using and the competitive, the moat they start to build versus their competitors who are working from scratch and reinventing the wheel and not competing on technical perfection, you start to get a feel for just how big an impact that resource shift can have. So yeah, I think AMP is, again, not perfect for all sites. It has its limitations. It is a platform and an approach. Um, but for many sites, it can be an absolute catalyst for not only fixing, but transforming how you approach tech. For I sure. think many SEOs can understand and embrace the value of AMP for things like um, news type sites, for content, for blogs. What about um, 
product pages. Well, what about other pages in your site? Are there real benefits for using AMP for that as well? Yeah. So initially, it wasn't great for that. It had a lot of, um, it, it didn't support those kinds of use cases. It was inflexible. A lot of those constraints have changed. There's been a lot of changes to both how AMP is governed and operated and how it functions technically. A lot of the constraints that did exist around um, certain uses of JavaScript have gone away. It is still not trivial to build a product page in AMP, but it, there's no reason it can't not be done. You can do the whole checkout through AMP um, frame stuff. You can use things like Stripe, like PayPal. Um, you can do things like interstitials and modals and uh, carousels and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's not, not that it's not the easiest thing in the world to do complex pages at the moment, but it's definitely achievable. Um, but the other thing people tend to struggle with with AMP is that they're still um, still building in paired mode. So they're having their um, AMP version of the page and the original version of the page, they're maintaining two. Really, that's a bit old school. And the, the right way to do this now is to just build the one. Excitingly, the next few months, um, at some point, we should start to see um, Bento AMP get a bit more coverage, which is the next evolution, which is just AMP as um, standalone components. So I want a carousel, I want a product image, I want a pricing unit, and you just load in the bits you need in the same way you might use some jQuery or something similar. I think that will be transformative and that will be really when it takes off and starts to shape the web. And also talking and about- No more slow websites. And also talking about adding different elements to your, to your site as well. Um, progressive web apps probably spring to mind there as well. Um, what are, what's a quick summary of what's that, that, that about and um, how can SEOs use that? Sure. So I think this is huge. I think a lot of people have only just started to encounter it when they've seen their bad scores for it in the um, Chrome Lighthouse tests and Core Web Vitals. Um, so we have a paradigm at the moment which doesn't really help Google, which is that we have web pages and websites and we have apps. And they are two entirely separate ecosystems that work in two different ways. Um, and that makes things like crawling and indexing and monetization quite difficult for Google. Um, the dream is that if I have a website, there's no reason why it couldn't behave like an app. There's no reason why it couldn't live on my phone and have an icon and be able to access um, APIs on my phone, like um, make a phone call. PWAs are that bridge. And they are generally surprisingly easy to set up. If you're on WordPress, there's a plugin, again, maintained by the same team of Googlers who continually update it. Plug and play, whack an icon in, and suddenly my website can behave as if it's an app and have the best of both worlds. But beyond that, it also acts as a framework to allow my website to act as an API. So if I want to be able to integrate into or out of any other system, say Salesforce or Zapier or my CRM or whatever else, um, this kind of frameworking makes it really easy for all of my bits of content just to be pushed and pulled in different directions. I see the combination of AMP and PWAs very much as a paired thing um, and very much as a smart move for certainly any content sites wanting to take advantage of that. And are PWAs likely to diminish the popularity of downloading an app onto an Android or uh, iOS device or uh, do they both fit together and they're, they're not necessarily the same thing? I think so eventually, um, though this is contentious. I remember when I first heard of them, it was um, Cindy Crum at a conference a few years ago first mentioned PWAs, and she said this will kill the app paradigm, the app ecosystem. And she got laughed out of the room because Apple had very firmly said at the time, we will not support PWAs um, in search on native devices, etc. And then they changed track, and now they aren't. Also, Google now openly crawls and indexes the content of apps and PWAs in much the same way. Um, again, Cindy has a whole bunch of information, insight into 
how some of the back end of Google Play is changing to disambiguate those things or to, to make them more ambiguous and amorphous. Um, so yeah, I think um, in the longer term, those distinctions go away and we just see PWAs in the App Store and apps in search results and it, the difference is academic. Okay, so if an SEO is struggling for time and they're thinking, Jono, yes, you're right, I absolutely need to spend more time making sure that my website is a technical success, it doesn't just limp by, it's not just the same as my competitors. What's one thing that they've perhaps been doing over the last five years that's diminished in value that they perhaps need to stop doing now to focus more time on the technical success of their website? Uh, the the lazy answer is um, link building for sure, and it's contentious because I know that yes, links still work, quote unquote, in some context contexts and for some purposes. However, I think as an industry, we still vastly over-index towards spending time building or buying or renting or otherwise acquiring links, and we do that because it's easy to commoditize. It's a convenient deliverable if you're an agency who is judged on what you've done this month. It's easy to do without internal politics or resource or fixing the platform or having an awkward conversation with the IT director, yada, yada, yada. It's an external, easy, separate thing. So we still do it because it's one of the few things that we can do as external contributors and agencies and similar. doesn't mean it's the right way to be spending our time. It doesn't mean that it's the best way to be spending our time. I think some of that budget and time and resource spent having those awkward conversations around, are we on the right platform? Is it sensible that we spend 10 hours a month fixing 404s, which over the course of a year adds up to X resource, which actually, if we just fix the thing, would be right forever? Do we have the right resourcing education? Is it sensible for us to be adopting the shiny new JavaScript framework when we evidently can't even prevent our current website from not having 404s, so on and so on and so on? I think there's a huge amount of focus still in the wrong places as an industry. And the more we can look at, um, are our websites healthy before we worry about let's get some promotion and some PR coverage in? feels like a good way to be investing, but it's not shiny. It's not exciting. It's not PR, is it? So yeah, it doesn't get a huge amount of attention. You can find the shiny Jono over at Yoast.com. John, <laughs> Jono, thanks so much for being part of SEO in 2022. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you across the course of it. We'll see how it unfolds. Check out the rest of the content from SEO in 2022 over at SEOin2022.com. <laughs> <laughs>